Men are notorious for not following directions and instructions. Am I right? What did we do, those of us that are old enough to, to remember life without a GPS on your phone? Anyone remember those days? A few of us? Like you actually had to write directions down and have a piece of paper. And if you didn't know where you were going, you had to actually follow directions. You had to actually follow instructions. And I have to admit, I'm not very good at following instructions when it comes to putting something together. Like you go to Ikea and you're going to put together a desk. I'm like, Janelle, you ready? Like I'll, I'll hand you the, the, the parts and the pieces, but I just don't have that gift or that patience. And I don't know what that is, but I would mess it up. And it got me to thinking a little bit about maybe some follow the instruction fails. And so I found some pictures that kind of cracked me up. Look at this first one. Somebody put a chair. That probably was done by me, if anything. Next one. That's an Ikea fail right there. She didn't put it together right in her bookshelf and the legs on the chair. Next. Yeah, look at this guy. It says, hazardous cliff, don't go beyond this point. Look where he's standing. All right. Next one. Drying the baby. Yes, with the towel, not in the dryer. Not good. <laughs> Brian, I'm getting some laughs today. And then last one, do not read this sign. Learn to follow instructions. That's <laughs> all right. We're in a series, if you're new with us, where all of last year we went through the Bible cover to cover. We didn't preach through the Bible, but many of us read the Bible. And we covered um, the highlights of the Old Testament. And we were looking for Jesus on every page of the Scriptures. How does this point to, to Jesus and us following Him? And we, now we're in kind of our New Testament and finishing out like the, the, the background of the New Testament as you read the Bible for yourself, trying to equip you to learn how to read, it, read the Bible for yourself. So we're doing this series, Whosoever Believes, where we're going through Romans through Revelation. And each week we're going through one of the letters that was written either by the Apostle Paul or, or one of the other church leaders or apostles. And we're, we're mining out like, what is the big idea? What is the crescendo passage in each one of these letters? And what's the, how does that give context to the book or the letter itself? So today, we're in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are called the pastoral epistles because the Apostle Paul is writing a personal letter to his two sons in the faith, Timothy and Titus. Timothy... Um, he's an amazing man. Paul finds him in the book of Acts, and he begins to disciple him and take him along on his missionary journeys. And he equips him to do ministry where Timothy pastored in Ephesus where they may have had, you know, thousands and thousands of people, the first true megachurch. And he's, he's writing to, to Timothy, and he calls him his son in the faith. Timothy, my son in the faith. We need spiritual fathers in our life. I had a biological father who is in heaven now with Jesus. He was a great man and a great father. But we also need spiritual fathers. We need people who will disciple us and mentor us, men and women. We need spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers 
people who will equip us, help us through, help us navigate through this thing called life. And our men's core breakfast that Brian was talking about, that's kind of the whole uh, goal is that we get the older mentoring the younger as we uh, side by side learn about Jesus and learn from the older and have opportunities to, to stretch each other and go into the, the deeper end of the pool, so to speak. So men, make sure you, you're part of that men's core, core breakfast. But we need that. One thing that's interesting about Timothy is Paul circumcised him at the age of 18. Should have been a collective gasp at that point in time. Because normally, little, little newborns get circumcised and they have no memories of it. Timothy had that memory for the rest of his life, being an adult when that, that happened to him. But it's an interesting part of the whole context of that. But Paul's writing him, giving him instructions on how to lead in the church of Jesus, how to have good doctrine. And so you and I, in reading a letter that wasn't written to us, was written personally to Timothy, we get to benefit from it as part of the New Testament and learn. So Paul, I, there's six chapters in 1 Timothy. And so what I've done is I've taken each chapter and found an instruction to the church or to Timothy or to us from the Apostle Paul to the church. And the first one, if you're taking notes on the app, the first one is fight the right fight. He says fight the good fight three times. He says it to Timothy twice, fight the good fight of faith. And then about himself in 2 Timothy, he says, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. But as I was thinking about that, the good fight is the right fight, right? How many know that uh, it's a divided world out there? It's divided. Everybody's fighting for something, whether it's civil rights or social justice or this cause or that cause or just fighting because we're fighting and there's so much going on there. As Christ followers, we can't get drawn into the wrong fights. We need to be fighting the right fight, and that's the good fight of faith. The Apostle Peter says this. He said, be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have if anyone asks you, but do it with gentleness and respect. No one's ever been argued into the kingdom of God. No one's ever, you don't, you don't argue your way into the kingdom or argue someone into the kingdom. It's very important. Don't find your identity in your politics or your political party or your race or anything other than you find your identity in Jesus and who he is. And then everything flows out of our identification with Jesus, who he says that, that we are. He told Timothy, he said, Timothy, my son, I am giving you this instruction in keeping with prophecies previously made about you so that by recalling them, you may fight the good fight. What is the good fight? The good fight is about following Jesus in an upside down world because the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus and the kingdom of this world, they're, they're polar opposites. The way of the world is selfishness. The way of the world is is anything goes, the way of Jesus is unselfishness, self-denial, 
It's others-centered, love and serving and humility. And the context of him saying to fight the good fight is false teaching. There was, there was always somebody that would come in behind Paul and try to teach some sort of legalism or, or, or whatever and, you know, things about genealogies. And they would take secondary issues and they would try to make them primary. And it would cause these new believers to kind of stumble a little bit. They didn't understand what was, what was going on. And we got to learn not to argue about dumb stuff or secondary stuff. That's so, so important. Infighting within Jesus' church is not pleasing to God. He wants us to walk in unity. Jesus prayed that we would walk in love and unity as He's in unity with the Father. Very important. Then the second instruction He gives is to pray for everyone. Pray for everyone. One of the the best ways to fight the good fight or fight the right fight is through prayer. It's through prayer. That's our lifeline to God 24-7 to be in conversation with Him. We fight the good fight on our knees in prayer and lifting prayers up for everyone. Listen to what he says. First of all, then I urge that petitions, prayers, and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for everyone. For who? everyone for kings and all those who are in authority hello like do we do that that was convicting to me as i was reading that like when have i lifted someone up in prayer that maybe i disagreed with their their policies or what's going on am i praying for them that's convicting so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity This is good, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. For this I was appointed a herald, an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. And a teacher of the Gentiles... In faith and truth. Therefore, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. There's a theme going on here. Praying is participating with God in what He's doing in the lives of others. When we pray, we're participating. He has invited us to pray so that we participate in what he's doing in the world around us. We get to participate with him. How do we pray? How do we pray for everyone? How do you pray for someone who's not a believer? Well, you pray that their hearts would be soft. You pray that they would come to know Jesus the way you did. I feel like the Lord told me that years ago is just, Lord, will you save that person the way you saved me? Will you open their, their eyes? Will you open their heart? Because I know before I became a believer, I was running from God and running away and doing my own thing. It was Him supernaturally opening my, my heart and my mind. And I ask Him to do that for people who don't believe, whose hearts maybe are hardened. And it could be an experience that they had with what they thought was church, what they thought was Jesus, and Christians let them down or the church let them down. Jesus said to pray for your enemies. 
Pray, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. That's not easy to do. The next time someone persecutes you, the next time someone is hostile with you, instead of in your mind or literally fighting with them or thinking bad, try praying. That's a challenge to me. And it should be a challenge to all of us to pray for everyone. Pray that people will find their self-worth and identity in Jesus. Because people are looking to find a, a grounding in their life of why do I exist? Does my life matter? Does my life, can it have impact? And when we pray that people find their identity in Jesus, I remember um, years ago, uh, this was when I actually, I've been following Jesus for almost 31 years. And so this was about, I was 25 and I was about two months uh, after I gave my life to Jesus. And I was, I was driving down in a neighborhood somewhere and I saw this girl who was about my age, maybe a little younger. And I felt prompted to pray for her. I had never seen her before, had no idea who this person was. But I just said, Lord, if this, that, that girl doesn't know you, I pray that she would know you and that you would draw her to you. And I kid you not, two weeks later, uh, at, at my, the church I was part of, we had a college and career class, like young adult class on Sundays. And um, all of a sudden, that girl walked into that class. And I was like, whoa, I remember I prayed for her. And I listened to her have a conversation with people around her, and she said, yeah. She said, I'm curious about Jesus um, in church, and I was invited to come here, and, and I just felt that God was drawing me somehow to himself. Do you know what that did for this new believer's faith, to hear that, that answered prayer, to pray for everyone? I remember going up to her, and I said, uh, hey, this may sound weird, but like I prayed for you two weeks ago and I don't know you and you don't know me. And it, she thought that was kind of weird too, but at the same time, it increased her faith. And she said, wow, that was a cool thing. Pray for everyone, Paul says in chapter two. In chapter three, Paul's instruction is to stress healthy church leadership. Stress healthy church leadership. Christ-like leadership. Healthy church leadership is Christ-like leadership. Pastors in America right now, church leaders in America, are at an all-time low of discouragement. The whole post-COVID stuff that created apathy within many local churches and apathy financially, apathy in participation, and pastors are discouraged. I talk to pastors all the time. And they're discouraged. I want to tell you something. I'm not. I'm hopeful. And my identity is not in what I do or what God's called me to do. My identity, first and foremost, is in Jesus. Forbes magazine wrote an article years ago about the three most stressful jobs in America. The first most stressful job was that of a university president. And they said the reason is that you have two groups of people you got to make happy. You got to make sure the students who pay the tuition that they're happy. And you got to make sure the teachers are happy because they're the ones doing, the, the professors are doing the teaching. The second most stressful job, they said, was that 
of a hospital president. Because again, you have the hospital president has to make, you've got to make the patients happy, <laughs> but you also have to make the doctors and the healthcare workers and the nurses happy. And that you're, it's this juggling act. Guess what the third most stressful job in America was? The local church pastor. Guess me. <laughs> and the reason they said that, and I can understand this, was that within a, a church, you have the people who are believers that are part of the church or church members, whatever word you want to use there, take care of them, grow them, and uh, not necessarily make them happy, but like cooperate together. And then you have this burden from the Great Commission to also reach people who don't know Jesus or who have been hurt by church, and you can never make everyone happy. One thing I learned during COVID was pastors were darned if we do, darned if we don't. Why aren't you open? Why did you shut? Blah, 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 blah. I had somebody quote the Constitution to me on one thing, and then somebody else said, posted that Pastor Scott doesn't care about the elderly because he's not forcing them to stay home. Okay. And in churches, you're dependent upon people giving, right? It's not a, there's not resources coming in from some sort of consumer aspect. It's dependent upon the generosity of people. So how do you stay healthy? How does church leadership stay healthy? Um, in 1 Timothy 3, in most of the versions that you read, um, he talks about the, the qualifications of an elder or an overseer. And I thought about reading from two different translations, but I'm going to read to you from the message translation, how uh, Eugene Peterson interprets this. The message translation, I don't, don't recommend be your everyday scripture reading, but it can be helpful sometimes to kind of accent the meaning of, of a text or a passage. It says this, if anyone wants to provide leadership in the church, good, but there are preconditions or qualifications. A leader must be well thought of, committed to his wife, cool and collected, accessible and hospitable. He must know what he's talking about, not be over fond of wine, not pushy, but gentle, not thin-skinned, not money-hungry. He must handle his own affairs well, uh, attentive to his own children and having their respect. For if someone is unable to handle his own affairs, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a new believer, lest the position go to his head and the devil trip him up. Outsiders must think well of him, or else the devil will figure out a way to lure him into his trap. Just a real quick side note. So the very first letter that Paul writes that we know the oldest letter was 1 Thessalonians. And in 1 Thessalonians, he doesn't use the word elder or, or bishop or overseers or any of that language. He just says, pray for your leaders. Do good to your leaders, those that are over you in the Lord. And the word elder kind of became a thing, and we see it in the book of Acts, when they would put an elder over a group of churches, several churches in one city. So like an overseer of several. And we kind of in the West have adopted that to one local church and a board of elders. We just call our board, board of directors and overseers. 
Um, I'm an ordained pastor, and so is Pastor Mark, our, our children and youth pastor. And then everything else is just driven by leadership, by, by people who lead ministries. And I think that's important because I've had people ask, why don't you have elders? Well, we do in the concept of what you, pe- most people think what an elder is. It's church leadership. I was watching a documentary about a group of churches that had pastoral and leadership failures. And it was eerie. It broke my heart. It broke my heart to see what can happen to somebody from somebody that they look up to in the Lord to fail them miserably. And it made me think that when you're called to church leadership or pastoring, you have the ability to shipwreck someone's faith if we fail, if we, if we have a, a failure of some sort. That's quite sobering. I never want to do that. So here's my ask of you guys. Will you always pray for us in leadership? Pray for us that we walk in wisdom and humility and keep everything before the Lord and everything honoring Jesus. I think when a church leader fails, it's, it's not like a marriage betrayal, but it sure is a cousin of it because there's such a commitment in, in, in it that it just breaks people's heart. In that documentary, several people said that they didn't even believe in Jesus anymore because of the pastor's fail. Now, I would say this, we follow Jesus, not people. And that's why I always tell you, um, you know, I'm not the shepherd of Novation Church. Jesus is the shepherd of this church. He's my shepherd. I'm just maybe like the lead sheep where we're a flock together and I'm, I'm following Jesus, our shepherd. I'm saying, he's going this way, let's go. I mean, that's kind of how I see the calling of what a pastor is. We're all in this thing together. Don't ever put pastors on some kind of pedestal. They'll let you down like that. You'll see that they're full of... Uh, you know, issues and stuff themselves, and that I am always constantly trying to work on my own spiritual health, constantly my emotional health, my mental health, my relational health, because we're in this thing. It's all of us are in this thing together. But there is, there is a stress on uh, stress. It can be stressful as a church leader, but we need to be healthy, and we're pursuing that. I promise you as your pastor, I am pursuing that personally in every way. And uh, I appreciate you guys praying. In chapter 4, his instruction is this. Watch your life and teaching closely. Watch your life and your teaching closely. He says, pay close attention to your life and your teaching. Persevere in these things, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. First of all, watch your life. What does he mean by that? He means watch your character, Timothy. Watch your character. But that goes for all of us, not just leaders, not just Timothy. Guard your character. Grow your character. Character counts. Keep your integrity. Nobody's perfect. Nobody's going to do it right all the time. But keep your integrity. No no one can take your integrity, but you can give it away. You can, get, you can forfeit your integrity by choices that we make or uh, unchecked behaviors, things of that, that nature. And we need, to, we need to watch that. 
Do you know the word integrity literally means without cracks when you go to the Greek? In the time, Bible times, they would take a piece of pottery if they were at a market and they would hold it up in the sunlight and it, they, you'd be able to see if it had cracks. And if it didn't, it had integrity. It was without cracks. So that's, we don't want to be hypocrites. We want to be people of integrity. Then he says, watch your teaching or your doctrine. Doctrine and teaching are basically the same word. And good, solid teaching, good, solid doctrine, it matters. We live out what we believe, right? And as I was thinking through this, like bad teaching, bad doctrine can be so destructive. And how many people have been beat over the head with the Bible or someone's point of view or interpretation of the Bible and they beat people over the head and, you know, and just cause fear and cause people to, to not see God right. Like when I stand up here and I open God's word, that scares me to say that I have the ability to potentially mislead anybody. No, I pray all the time, Lord, say what you want to say. And if we don't know what God is like, we look into the person of Jesus. He is what the Father is like. And we work backwards from there. Sometimes you get, somebody, one, one time somebody said this to me, and I thought this was really profound. That liberal theology or liberal teaching is this. Um, the Bible's not really the word of God, but we're going to follow Jesus anyway. Fundamentalists, to the far right, say the Bible is the Word of God, and my interpretation is the correct one. The more balanced approach and the more humble approach to Scripture is this. The Bible is the Word of God, and where it's black and white, I, we are going to be black and white. Where it feels a little bit gray, secondary issues, let's talk about it. But let's don't make a mountain out of a molehill. And at our church, we've been blessed to be able to major on the majors, the Apostles' Creed, apostolic teaching, the most important fundamental things that unite all believers past, present, and future. But in secondary things, they can be very important. You know, the spiritual gifts, mode of baptism, how you worship, church government, all that kind of stuff. Those are important, but it's not primary. And when you take a secondary issue and you make it a primary, you create a denomination. You create a new movement. Instead of realizing Jesus wants us to walk, be unified over the essentials. And then in chapter 5, his instruction is to take care of the vulnerable in your church. The context is the issue of widows. Back then, the lifespan of a husband was shorter than that of a wife. So there, there were different types of widows. There were the older widows who probably weren't going to get remarried. And then you had younger widows who could get remarried. And so Paul's instruction, and, and widows would have been the vulnerable in their church at that point, obviously others, but his, his specific instruction is about how do you take care of a widow. And he said the older widows... If they have family, they can take care of their mom or their grandma. He says, if they don't have that, 
then church, you are to take care of them materially, give them food, make sure they're taken care of. To the younger widows, he said, I encourage them to get remarried, to get remarried. Because back then, most of the time, men were just the main breadwinners. And so they were dependent upon uh, their husbands. And he says this, he says, likewise, good works are obvious and those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden. Who's the vulnerable in our church? We don't have a, you know, a ton of widows. And often in our Western modern society, there's life insurance, there's all kinds of possibilities. Of course, we will take care of widows indeed, in need. But who, do we, who are we called to protect and provide for the vulnerable? I thought of children. How many are grateful that we have Mark Bullion and our youth leaders and team? They are in the trenches, and our teenagers and, and younger are uh, in a world that's, you know, not exactly pointing people to righteousness and, and Jesus, but to things that are opposite of how God designed life for us to live. And I think the elderly are vulnerable as well, and we need to make sure we are taking care of the vulnerable. And I think you and we do do a good job. We want to continue to do that. If you're new here, home groups are a huge part. They're the DNA of Novation. We are a community of Christ followers that do it in the context of relationship with one another. Home groups are where people get together and they carry one another's burdens and they care for one another and they care for vulnerable within their group as well. So um, if you want to know more about home groups, feel free to ask. And then the last instruction that Paul gives Timothy and to us is don't love money. Don't love money. Use money, but don't love it. Don't worship money. Don't fall in love with money. As Brian was, we didn't even talk about this. He has no idea he took part of my point (laughs) in, in that offering talk, which I think was great. He says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, O man of God, flee from these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. There's nothing wrong with having money. There's nothing wrong with having stuff. Just don't let it have your heart. Don't let it have, have you. Jesus talked a lot about money. And he talked a lot about it as a discipleship thing, as, as following him that, you know, as Brian said, you can't love God and money. You're going you're gonna to serve one or the other. You'll be serving money or you're going to serve God by how you spend your money, by how you use your money. The antidote to the love of money or possessions or material goods is two things, stewardship and generosity. Stewardship is the realization that everything that I have is God's to start with, and it's all on loan. He loans it to us to steward it. It's like you you have a a financial planner, and and you give them, tell them, here's how do I 
grow my money? How do I use my money? And the financial planner tells you how to do that. Well, we're God's, you know, kind of financial planners. Not like He needs us, but He's given us that responsibility to steward His creation, to steward what He's put in our life. And what He wants us to do with the things that He's put in our life is to be generous with it. How many know it's easy to be generous with other people's things, right? So if somebody let you live in a really nice house and had a pool and blah, 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 hey, let's have parties every day. Come on over, you know, and eat all the food because it's free and it's somebody else's food. We, we're generous when it's somebody else's. But it's when it's our stuff, we tend to have a, a mindset of scarcity that if I'm generous, what's going to be left over for me? But God wants us to live in a, an abundance mentality that we can't outgive God in our generosity, whether it's finances, sharing our stuff, opening our homes, sharing the things that He's put in our life. Generosity is a blast, right? You've never seen an unhappy, generous person. Generous people are always full of joy because God's a generous God. He has shared His creation with us and he shared his son with us. And Jesus shares everything that is his with us. He shares his inheritance. Everything that is his, Ephesians 1 says, he has shared with you and I. It's pretty cool. He's generous, and he wants us to live generously. I'm going to bring this to a close. Josh. <laughs> We always come up with little cues. Um, here's what, how I thought what I would ask you about this message today. How do you feel you're supposed to respond to these instructions? In other words, what maybe stood out to you? Here comes that plane again. Thank you. That. How do you feel? What has God been convicting you of? I know I was convicted writing this message. And conviction is a good thing. Conviction comes from the Holy Spirit. He's trying to convince us of something that's true and for us to orientate our life in the way of Jesus, in the way Jesus in His truth would be. Is there somewhere that you've been convicted? What could you do to follow the instructions better. Maybe part of your life you feel like one of those chairs that was assembled wrong. And that comes from not following His instructions, though, ultimately. We all, we all learn that. We're either going to learn by first-time obedience or we're going to learn by our mistakes. We don't have to learn by mistakes. We can learn by first-time obedience and putting into practice what He says to do. Second question is this. Is there somewhere you were encouraged in what you just heard? You were encouraged. Rejoice. Rejoice in this cool relationship between the Word of God and obedience and doing what He says to do and following His instructions. And listen, we're going to fail. We're going to make mistakes. But the beauty of Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the Word of God is when we fail, He shows us and He helps us get back on the right path and stay on the right path and not flounder 
off the path. That's all he's asking of all of us today. Would you stand with me? I don't know where everybody's at in your walk. But I know that Jesus is saying constantly to all of us, would you agree with me that I'm Lord and Savior? Because we don't make him Lord and Savior. He's already Lord and Savior of all. We just agree with him. I think that's the essence of faith. And then we walk with him. And we discover what he's like in, in the Gospels. And we discover what the life of a believer is like as we read through the New Testament and how God used those, these letters to instruct us on how to live in this, in this chaotic world and how to live lives that, that honor him and how we live lives that are filled with joy and peace and hope in a pretty hopeless world right now. Heavenly Father, thank you for the blessing of Jesus. We receive it today. We receive it, Lord. Help us through faith, hope, and love to abide in you, Jesus. And do what you've called us to do and live through these difficult times and difficult seasons and trials and struggles and questions and doubts. Lord, we're abiding in you. We're remaining in you because you're always with us. God, I pray for those this morning that are, are struggling with habits. They're entangled by something that they are feeling guilt and shame over this morning. Lord, show them that you have given them the power to have breakthroughs, to walk in your grace, to walk in your authority. God, I pray for those that are physically sick, in need of, of healing, in need of comfort and grace, pour it out upon them. God, I pray for those that have questions and doubts this morning. Lord, reveal yourself to them through your Son. God, I pray for those who are grieving this morning and on that pattern of grief. May the God of all comfort comfort your hearts and have joy in the midst of sorrow. And may the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you, be gracious, gracious to you, and give you his peace this day forevermore through his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.